chapter 39 is where we are this morning. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 12. Genesis chapter 39 and beginning in verse 1. Reading down to verse 12 of our chapter today. Verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hands. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not what he had, save the bread which he did eat. Joseph was a goodly person and well favoured. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not or knoweth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as he spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, Joseph, having been sold into slavery, was carried away to Egypt by the Ishmaelites, where he was paraded in a slave market and bought for a very good price. A young, fit Hebrew was certainly a good buy, and so Joseph's life was quickly snapped up by Potiphar, captain of Pharaoh's guard. We're not told that Joseph received any special revelation from God at this point. There was no word given to him. There was no reassurance given to him as to the direction his life was now taken. Uh, He had, remember, no Bible. There was not even the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis wasn't yet written, and he himself is the subject or a subject of that book. And so he didn't even have a Bible in his hand. All he had was fading memories of a revelatory dream given to him sometime before, telling him that at some point in the future, his brothers and his father and mother will come and bow before him. But now he finds himself in a, as a slave some 300 or more miles from his home. Place yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. I wonder how you or I would have responded 
to this circumstance? Would we have been distressed? Would we have been in despair? Would we have felt forsaken by God? Would we have been cast down or spiritually disillusioned? You know, we, we have a Bible in our hands. And yet the truth of the matter is that when troubles do come our way, we often forget the promises of God and they count as nothing. And yet notice that throughout this entire period of trial and difficulty in Joseph's life, he reacted to his spell in slavery in Potiphar's house and beyond with great character. Here is a man of unquestionable character. Notice in verses 1 to 6, Joseph's boundless industry. You know, Potiphar was a man of tremendous importance in Egypt. He was a man of tremendous influence in that land. Obviously, he was a wealthy man. He was a man who could employ a a household full of slaves. And yet, as he observed this acquisition, Joseph at work, he realized that he had someone in his employ that stood head and shoulders above the others. Industry, my friends, is a mark of Christian character. You see, it would have been very, uh, it would have been very easy for Joseph to do just enough to get by, wouldn't it? And probably that's what most slaves would have done. Done precisely what was asked of them and not one little bit more. To do the bare minimum. But Joseph evidently went beyond. He went above and beyond what was being asked of him. What might be reasonably expected. And he proved his own character as a believer before Potiphar. Can I say to you this morning that your business is also God's business? Wherever God has placed you to labor... Wherever your workplace may be, whatever it is that you may do for a living, your place of work is the place of God's testimony. And yet how many Christians bring dishonor to Jesus' name by being dishonest or careless or lazy in their workplace? You know, the Christian above all should be the best kind of employee. He should be one who gives a fair day's work and indeed more than a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. I remember reading several years ago about a Christian in Czechoslovakia who worked in the, in the communist factories there. And every year they would hold a, a, a prize-giving day in which the leader of the communist party would come out and he would give an award for the comrade who had, comrade who had been the most industrious and who had put in the most effort. And every year, to his annoyance, it wouldn't be one of the died-in-the-world died communist party members who would get that prize. But it would be this Christian, this person that they despised, this one who'd put his trust in Christ and who spoke openly of his belief in God. He was the one who took the prize year in and year out. And so to his embarrassment, the uh, leader of the Communist Party had to turn this prize over to this Christian brother. You know, according to the Guinness Book of Records, the greatest theft in the world is the value of employers' time paid for but not worked in the United States of America. I wonder, is your employer paying for you, paying you for work that you're not actually doing? Do you come in late and leave early? Do your breaks go beyond the allotted time? Is too much time spent by you on your phone, checking on social media? Are you guilty of bringing home equipment and property that isn't yours to have? Are you witnessing during your employer's time? 
You know, some Christians get so involved in witnessing that they forget that they're being paid to work. But my friends, your employer isn't paying you to witness. He's paying, pay, paying you to work. And if you work, you're being a witness. A Christian ought to be the greatest of employees. Look in Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 22. And it begins with the word servants. That's slaves. Slaves, servants, obey in all things your masters, it says. Colossians 3.22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers. But in singleness of heart with determination. Fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Do you realize that when you leave this church building and you go to work tomorrow morning, wherever your work may be, and you enter into your workplace, that you're just as much performing the service of God there as you are here in this place of worship? You may say, well, pastor, I hate to tell you this, but I'm not paid enough for what I do. If I take five minutes extra of my break, well, in fairness, they don't really pay me very well, so I feel justified in doing that. Or or maybe you say, well, you don't understand how poor the conditions in my workplace are. You know, I've, I've noticed, and you can't help but have noticed just about everybody's on strike this weather. You know, I kind of laughed that, you know, they, they said that this last week, I think it was, was the uh, road maintenance crews were on strike. And I looked at the comments underneath that, and everybody said, will anybody notice? <laughs> I thought it was a little harsh on the road maintenance crews, but, but there you go. Everybody wants more money. Everybody thinks their conditions are not acceptable. And maybe you're that person this morning. Or maybe you say, well, wait a minute, my boss, my boss is difficult to get along with. If you knew the kind of character I worked for, you wouldn't want to work for him either. Let me tell you, I worked for a very tough boss. When I was a young draftsman, we had a boss who was an absolute terror, a horrible man. And uh, one time he was in trouble. He was in trouble. Because the drawings were behind time. He, whatever happened, he hadn't scheduled it right or whatever. And we were having to get drawings out for a certain time. And he was behind time with that. And the whole drawing office was behind time with that. And so he decided that there would be a push for overtime for a particular weekend in which everybody should come in and work Saturday and Sunday. And so he went around all the other draftsmen. And he asked them if they would come in. Well, because they hated him so much, because he was such a difficult boss... All of those men who were not Christians made up reasons why they couldn't come in. They determined that they were going to let them hang them out to dry. And so some of them said, well, I can't come. You know, I've got a wedding to attend. And there was no wedding to attend. Another one said, well, I can't come. My mother's in the hospital and I've got to go see her. And they made up excuses. And I sat beside a fellow who went to the, went to the Iron Hall. And he and I would sit there together. We had a great time and sitting beside each other, fellowshipping while we were working. And, uh, you know, we looked at each other. We didn't want to come in on the, on the Saturday. We certainly didn't want to come in on the Sunday. And I said to him, what are we going to do? And he says, I don't know. He says, we'll just have to come in. And so our boss came to us and we said, well, listen, we'll not work on Sunday, but we'll come in and work Saturday if you like. And he was so grateful that when we came in and worked on Saturday, instead of giving us double time, he gave us triple time. 
He paid us three times what we were supposed to be paid. And not only that, whenever I left, he wrote me a very glowing report. He gave me a very glowing reference, which he wouldn't have done otherwise, I don't think. But he, he was in my favor, I guess, because I'd done this for him. But here's the thing, friends. Do you think that Potiphar was an easy boss? Do you think when Joseph was brought into Potiphar's house that, uh, that Potiphar was a soft touch? That he had a, a gentle hand? I mean, look what it says here in the passage in, there in chapter 39. The very first thing you're told about him is that he was the, uh, that he was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. That's the first thing you're told about Potiphar. He was the captain of, of the guard. of. Uh, and what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means he's henchman in chief. It means he was the chief executioner. It means if you crossed the line, you answered to Potiphar. Do you think he was then an easy boss to get along with? Do you think he wasn't a man who could speak harshly to somebody if he had to or wanted to? Of course he could. And yet with all, what do we find? We find that Joseph served Potiphar with boundless industry. He served him without complaint. He served him well. And God blessed him for it. Look at verses 2 and 3 of our reading in chapter 39. It says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now notice those puzzling statements there. We read that Joseph, now bear in mind he's a slave, he's a teenage boy who's a slave. We're told he was a prosperous man. And that he prospered. How can a man who is a slave be described as prosperous or prospering? Because real prosperity, friends, has very little to do with pounds or pence. And here's the flawed theology of the prosperity preachers exposed. Here's a man who hasn't got two pennies to his name. Here's a man who has very little other than room or board. And yet the Bible says of him that he's prosperous. He doesn't own a, a beautiful home by the sea. He's not driving an up, up a market car. He's not wearing the best of clothes and the best of shoes. He's not eating in the finest of restaurants. He's a fellow who is existing as a slave. And yet the Bible says he's prosperous. You see, real prosperity is prosperity of the heart. And a man without Christ, let me say this to you, is the poorest man on the planet. When compared to a believer. You see, it doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account. Bill Gates is one of the wealthiest men in the world. But let me tell you, as far as I know, the man doesn't know Christ. So as far as heaven's perspective goes, he's one of the poorest men on the planet. Friends, never measure success in monetary terms. Don't think that your bank balance tells the real story. You know, Job said this, if I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence. If I rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gotten much, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. Where is real prosperity found? It is found not in your wallet, but in your heart. Look in Proverbs chapter 8 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 8. 
verse 17. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. Here's the personification of wisdom. What does wisdom say? Verse 17, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Notice what that scripture says. It says that the wisdom of scripture is better than the finest of gold, that the revenue of God's truth is greater than the choicest of silver. And you know, when we think about a wealthy man, Or a wealthy woman. We think about a rich person. We think in terms of what they are able to do that we cannot do. You know, we hear folks say things like this. What I'd do if I had a million pounds. Do you ever think like that? I think every one of us has thought that at some point. What would I do if I won a million pounds? Or, you know, I've heard people say, you know, what would you do if you won the lottery? I said, I'd rejoice because I've never done the lottery. That would be a miracle. But nevertheless, people think to themselves, what would I do if I won the lottery? What would I do with all that money? You know, invariably they say, well, I'll travel the world or I'll buy a big house or I'll pay off all my debts or I'll help my family out or or, or something along that vein. But wealth of the heart isn't evidenced so much by what you're able to do, but listen to me now, but by what you're not able to do. Wealth of the heart is evidenced not by what you're able to do, but by what you're not able to do. Look at Joseph's blessed inability here in verses 7 through 9 of Genesis 39. It says that it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now we said it already, Joseph being around was a bonus to Potiphar. The captain of Pharaoh's guard entrusted him and with all that he had. He trusted him implicitly. Indeed, such was his trust in him that Potiphar didn't even know the extent of his possessions. In fact, we read in verse 6 that Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's hand. You read that recurrently throughout the chapter. Verse 4, all that he had he put into his hand. Verse 5, all that he had, he was, he was overseer over all that he had, all that he had in the house, all that he had in the field. He left all that he had. Joseph's own testimony is that Potiphar hath committed all that he hath to my hand. Now that's a very telling phrase, that he had left all that he had. You know, Potiphar was a career man. He didn't get to be the captain of Pharaoh's guard by accident. 
He got there by design. He had purpose to move up the ranks of the military and now he is standing alongside Pharaoh in command of his forces. And like many career-minded men and women, Potiphar didn't have much time for home. He didn't have much time for family. He didn't have much time with the the nitty-gritty of domestic life. He was constantly in the family, constantly in the office. He was always on call. He was busy making his mark in this world. Indeed, verse 1, when it's first introduced us to him, says that he was an officer of Pharaoh. And the word officer is interesting. It's the word eunuch. You know, all prominent military officers in Egypt were castrated by custom. Remember, Egypt was ruled by dynasties, by families, and generations of families. And so a man who was in a position of power may have considered the possibility of establishing his own dynasty, bumping off the pharaoh and then reproducing his own family and passing on the rule down his line. And so to prevent such a military coup happening when someone got to a certain position in society and they were around the pharaoh, they were mutilated in their sexual organs. So Potiphar's home would not have been a happy home. He wasn't around much. He was a busy man. And when he was around, well, there was probably very little affection between him and his wife. He didn't have much to do with her. And so when you read of Potiphar's wife, you're looking at a lonely woman. And and this lonely woman living in this grand house has within her reach a very handsome young man. This young man doesn't go unnoticed. The Bible says there notice that Joseph was a goodly person. And the word goodly means he was good looking. He was handsome. As for Potiphar's wife, we can surmise that she was likely a very attractive woman. Like many attractive women, she had married for money. She had married for status. You know, we have this phrase that's come into our uh, vocabulary now in English, English uh, the wags, you know, wives and girlfriends. And so when you have World Cup games or you have uh, great big cricket matches or rugby tournaments, very often the, uh, the gossip columns of the newspapers will turn their attention uh, to the wives and girlfriends of the players. And, and you realize, you know, if you, you're looking at some of these players and you're looking at their wives and their wives are models and they look like they've been run over by a tractor and you think to yourself, you know, if he was a plumber or an electrician or something, he'd never have a girlfriend like that. Well, what does she see in him? Well, it's not as good looks, is it? And she sees his money. She sees his lifestyle. And so that's exactly where Potiphar's wife was. She was a socialite. She had climbed the ladder also. Uh, She was a high flyer in the world of ancient Egyptian politics. But emotionally, uh, she was a vulnerable woman. There was a longing in her heart for some male companionship, for a man's touch. And she saw what she was looking for in this young Hebrew who had come into her midst called Joseph. So as Joseph went about his daily business, we read, notice that she cast her eyes upon him. Now that doesn't mean she had glass eyes. <laughs> she didn't take him out and throw him at, her, at him. It means that she looked at him in a certain way. And you get the picture. It was a seductive look. It was a suggestive look. 
In the book of Proverbs, speaking of the strange woman, the woman who doesn't belong in your life, says, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. You know, we don't often associate eyelids with sexual chemistry, but they are. And if you don't believe that, then just ask yourself, why do women spend such vast amount of money each year on eye makeup? Because eyes are attractive. And with the eyes, a woman can draw a man's looks in. Maybe you've heard someone being described as having bedroom eyes or a a person undressing another person with their eyes. In other words, there's a look that draws a man or a woman into intimacy. In marriage, such a look is fine. But outside of marriage, it's extraordinarily dangerous. So she casts her eyes upon him and then she lies, she says to him, to lie by her. She says, come lie with me. Lie by me. You know, again, Proverbs says this, with her much first speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. She's seducing him. She's endeavoring to draw him into this illicit relationship. Now, last week, or the last time we were together, we looked at Judah in the previous chapter. We saw how that Judah fell for sexual temptation. That he was immoral and he was carnal and he wound up actually sleeping with his own daughter-in-law. But where Judah fell, Joseph was victorious. Joseph overcame. Look at those first three words of verse 8. You've got to admire these words. It says, but... He refused. She said, lie with me. But he refused. There was his power. He met temptation with a definite act and attitude of the will. It wasn't going to happen. Not now, not ever. He refused on rational grounds. He says, well look, behold, my master knows not what is with me in this house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There was a rationale to it. How could he betray Potiphar's trust? How could he let down his testimony at this juncture, when his master had placed so much stock in him? Let me tell you something. If you are a married person, The day your husband or wife placed that ring upon your finger, they placed their trust in you. They believed that you would be faithful and you would show fidelity for the rest of your life to your relationship. But when you toy with adultery, you breach that trust wholesale. And it's a trust that is very difficult to rebuild, let me tell you. Because I have dealt with couples and they've been in this situation where a husband or a wife has been unfaithful and then they're trying to restore the marriage. And let me tell you, it's a nightmare. Because it's very difficult to gain that trust back. But Joseph wasn't finished yet. For Joseph had a far better reason than even Potiphar's trust in him. Notice in verse 9 he says, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me, but but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin 
against God. You see, this was more than a sin against Potiphar. It was a sin against God. All sin is primarily a sin against God. We sin against each other for sure, but that's a secondary aspect to our sin. The primary sin is always against God. And this was Joseph's blessed inability. Here is this beautiful woman, and she's lying before him, and she says, come and lie with me. She's made herself up. She smells nice. The room is probably gorgeous. Everything about it says, come and lie with her. And he says, I can't do it. Why? Because it would be a great sin against God. That's why. He says others might be able to do it, but I can't. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's begin reading in verse 12 of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Not everything is very wise. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meat for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now watch what he says. Now the body is not for fornication or adultery, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ, that you belong to Christ, that you are intrinsically connected and mystically connected to his body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What, know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication, a two-word sentence. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple, the dwelling place of the holy God, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is the holy of holies in this day and age, if you're a Christian. It's the very dwelling place of God. And there are lots of things that you may do in your flesh. There are many things that you might like to do in your flesh. But when you understand, in keeping with that passage, that first of all, God has created me. Second of all, Christ has redeemed me. And third of all, the Holy Spirit indwells me. That I am therefore not my own. That I am bought with a price that my purpose for existence is to glorify God so that I cannot give my flesh to sin. When you come to that understanding, you then have a blessed inability. Others may, but you cannot. Others may, but you cannot. Others may get into fornication, but you cannot. Others may give into adultery, but you cannot. Others may smoke and drink and take drugs, 
But you cannot. Others may go down to the nightclubs and the pubs and enjoy the things of this world. But listen, you cannot. Why? Because you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And your goal is to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is as blood-bought as your soul. You realize that. That's why the Lord Jesus has redeemed or will redeem the body and call it out of the grave. He's purchased it. That's why he'll take us on to himself at the rapture. So we think about Joseph's boundless industry and we think about his blessed inability. And then I want you to notice in verses 10 through 12 as we close his blameless integrity. Verse 10 it says, It came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her He wouldn't listen to her, to lie by her, or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now we want to think about his blameless integrity. Integrity is about character. It's about our values. It's about our ethics. It's about our morals. You know, anybody can resist a temptation one time. But to resist a temptation, the same temptation, day after day, takes real moral fiber. And notice that's what happened. It says she spoke to Joseph day by day, but he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. Here's the thing. You know, you'll very rarely hear me say anything complimentary about the devil from this pulpit, but I'll say this for the devil. The devil never gives up. He never quits. He never says, you know what? I've tempted that guy so many times and he hasn't given. I'll just leave him alone. He's never going to do that. He's going to stick at it and stick at it and stick at it. He didn't quit with Joseph. He didn't quit with Jesus. He's not going to quit with you. And he's not going to quit with me. I remember hearing the story of an old pastor who was sitting in a Bible college uh, talking to the young people that were gathered there, the young students there. And one fellow said to him, Listen, pastor, the Bible says that we're to uh, flee also youthful lusts. He says, You're an old man now. He says, What would be the lusts of your old age? He says, Young man, the lusts of my old age are the same lusts I had when I was a young man. The same trials, the same temptations. The devil never gives up. Never. And yet the Bible says that day by day she spoke to Joseph. What did she say? Well, let's have a look in Proverbs chapter 7 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you're not familiar with them, speak about the strange woman. And when it talks about a strange woman, it doesn't mean strange, peculiar. It means strange as in she is a stranger, she doesn't belong, she's a foreigner to your wedding or to your marriage or to your relationship. She has no place in your life. And it could be a strange man for that matter. It doesn't have to be a strange woman in that sense. But Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 15, notice what this woman says. Well, let's, let's see what she says. Let's back up a little bit. Verse 13, notice what she does with this young man in, in this particular passage, this simple young man. It says, so she caught him, exactly what Potiphar's wife did. She caught him and kissed him and with an impudent face said unto him, notice her words, I have peace offerings with me this day. Have I paid my vows? Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face 
and I have found thee. Now notice she begins with some religious matters. I have peace offerings with me. I have paid my vows. Don't you think for one moment, because you're in a church hall, that you cannot find this temptation in this room among these people who are gathered here. It doesn't have to be somebody out in the world, you know. In fact, every, every case of, of adultery that I've ever dealt with has involved people who sat under my ministry, sat where you're sitting, and who connected with each other in church. So just because someone seems particularly spiritual or religious or says the right things doesn't necessarily mean that their heart is right with God. Notice verse 16. She says, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. She's luring him in. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. She uses the word love, but actually it's lust. Let us solace ourselves, comfort ourselves with loves. For the good man, the husband, is not at home. He's on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. You could hear Potiphar's wife saying those things day by day. Hey, listen, look, my bed is here. It has the best linen that Egypt can afford. Come, don't forget that slave dorm that you're in. Come and lie in my soft couch. Smell my room. Smell this beautiful perfume and aroma that I've spread around the room. Let's take our fill of love until the morning. Hey, Potiphar's away. Don't worry about him. He's away in business. He's taking a bag of money. He's off attending to Pharaoh. My husband, you know, my husband can't meet my needs like you can, Joseph. You know, by doing this, you'll show that you really do care for me, Joseph. You know, come on, nobody's going to find out, Joseph. It's just, there's nobody else in the house, just me and you. How can it be so wrong when it feels so right, Joseph? Just this once, Joseph, just once, let's take our fill of love. And so she set him up. Dismissing all others from the household, she physically catches him. Verse 12, we read, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now, I would say to you, the world might say to you, well, that's not very manly, is it? I mean, here's a guy who's been given an open goal. Beautiful woman. Luxurious surroundings. You know, she can make life easier for him. You know, what man wouldn't take up the opportunity? You know, surely a real man would do that. What kind of man runs? Any red-blooded male worth of salt would have seen the chance and, and would have taken it. But Joseph ran. But let me tell you this. In running, he wasn't showing weakness. He was showing strength. Strength of character. He was stronger than most men in this world are. He was wiser than most men are. He was purer than his peers. Friends, in situations of compromise, moral compromise, and sexual compromise, the Bible tells us to flee. That's the word it uses. Flee. Proverbs 6, 5, Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. 
We just read in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee fornication. Flee, run from it. 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee also youthful lusts. Flee. I heard a preacher uh, preaching on that one time and he, he, he gave it as a spoonerism. You know, a spoonerism is when you mix up your words and instead of saying flee also youthful lusts, he said flee also lustful youths. Well, let me tell you, young people, that's what you need to do as well. Keep yourself pure. Flee. Run from it. Don't be sucked into it. Don't buy the devil's lie. Listen, it's going to damage you. It's going to hurt you. Follow God's path. Do the right thing. You know, if you're going to resist sexual temptation, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're married or single, whether you're a young person or an old person, you're going to need four requirements. Number one, you must never bow to situational ethics. Situational ethics changes according to the situation. God's word is God's word no matter what the circumstances, no matter what your situation. It doesn't bend with the wind or move with the tide. God's word remains the same. You know, Joseph was a slave. He was in a strange land. He was in unfamiliar territory. He was far away from loved ones and from his own homeland. And, and surely he was lonely. And there must have been days when he was heartbroken. And times he must have been very frustrated about his situation. And he could have given any number of reasons as to why it would be appropriate for him to lie with Potiphar's wife. But he decided not to. Why? Because he understood the word of God. And he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He says, it doesn't matter what my situation is. I'm going to do the right thing. Then secondly, you must never give ear to your temptations. Many times Potiphar's wife came at him. Many times she flattered him. Many times she batted her eyelids at him. Many a time he went past her door and the door gently opened. But he refused. He refused to listen. He refused to lie by her or even to be with her. I love that. He refused to even to be with her. And then thirdly, you must mortify your flesh. You see, adultery and fornication offers you unconditional human connection and companionship, but it never, never lives up to its promises. I'm going to tell you now, and I know this from dealing with people in this situation, adultery is a cruel, heartless, intense, and destructive sin. It'll damage your soul. And then fourthly, and this is a great principle to take with us as our last thought, you must never sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. Never sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. You see, if Joseph had slept with Potiphar's wife, well, for sure, at least in the short term, life would have been better for him. He would have had companionship for a while. You know, she could have made life a lot easier for him. She could have made sure that when the chores were being handed out, that he got the easiest jobs, that he had to come and dust her room tidy around her bedchamber. 
She could have taken care of those things. After all, you know, Potiphar's away much of the time. Who do you think's in charge? She is. She's in charge of that household. She would have saw that he had plenty of free time, time off to spend with her. And yet with all, Joseph understood that there was a bigger prize to be had. God had promised him a far greater reward. God had told him that at some point out there, he was going to be in a position of authority. And that his own brothers, his own flesh and blood, his own father and his mother Leah would come and bow before him. He understood what was at stake. And he kept the bigger prize in view. You know, a moment's sexual gratification is not worth the years of shame and of guilt and regret and damage. It's not worth the heartbreak. It's not worth the broken home. It's not worth the wasted life. And it's definitely not worth going to the feet of Jesus with empty hands. Flee fornication. Flee youthful lusts. Deliver thyself from the hand of the hunter and God will bless you for it and you'll be a prosperous man or a prosperous woman. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.